because for the last almost a month I've been with a friend and her husband as she was going through the last stages of terminal pancreatic cancer. And it was a very, very God-inspired passing. She lasted in her body more than two weeks longer than the hospice nurse thought she ever could. The hospice nurse predicted on a Friday that she would pass in a matter of hours and she saw three more Sundays before she left. And uh, I learned a lot about her in that time. I learned a lot about all of us actually but I also learned a lot about her. Um, it goes without saying, but it's very different when you actually watch it, that everything goes away when you die. I mean, just everything. Just start anywhere with what's in your life and imagine it gone. All the way down to your name, your identity, your relationships, your likes, your dislikes, your capacity to move your own body, absolutely everything. And uh, she became a very ill about eight months ago, but for seven of those months um, she was working hard believing that she could get better and it was only when that became clearly not what God was asking of her that she turned toward hospice and lasted about a month, a little more than a month. Um, the month that I spent with her was a, a, a continuous process of facing and letting go just what is holding me, what is holding me. Her body was so weakened that it seemed reasonable that she could pass in a few days. As it turned out, she was relatively young, almost literally exactly the same age as me, not quite 70. And her body was very strong because she was a yogi and an athlete. And the hospice nurse's explanation, not a spiritual but a physical one, was quite simply that her body was so strong and she was so darn good at breathing. (laughs) She was just able, she was doing belly breathing just right to the end, you know. Um, her breath would sort of become shallow and then all of a sudden it would just drop again. She'd just be using, pumping away at her diaphragm like a good yogini. And, uh, but we also wanted to make sure that she wasn't being held back. She wanted to make sure that she wasn't being held back by any attachments or self-definitions or desires. And she was very conscientious and it, it, it becomes a very stark process because physical energy becomes limited and the attention is, moves, um, you know, it, you get, you get, you're sort of between the worlds. Because one, because her body was so debilitated right from the start. And even though her husband and friends were with her really right up to the end, you know, her, her, her reality becomes quite divided. So obstacles and conversations were very truncated. It wasn't like you would have hours and hours, but it was like by the time something was articulated, there was almost literally a lifetime that had led up to it. So it would be just a few comments, you know, what about your mother kind of issues? What else might be holding you back? Um, Does dying hurt? And then repeatedly, I'm not really quite sure how to do this. She was very conscious of the fact she was trying to get out of her body. It's on more than one occasion she asked me and others, do you know how to do this? <laughs> how will I know? And all we could say, I mean, I don't remember either, was, I think you'll know. 
And, of course, the reason she didn't know is because it wasn't time. She came very, very close. All the signs that uh, a hospice nurse would look for, she had them all, you know, in terms of exiting. And we thought many times she was going to leave. We all felt this enormous expanded energy in the room, but she would come back from it. The hospice nurse had an interesting theory. She said she'd had another um, client who lasted much longer than was expected, who was also a serious meditator. The, uh, the nurse raised the proposition that meditators are used to going into expanded states and don't necessarily see it as a death experience. <laughs> Whereas the average person, if they even touch into that, just doesn't have any, it's so disconnected from their normal life that they, they don't know how to get back. Now, uh, that's just a layman's analysis. I thought it was delightful. <laughs> uh, whether accurate or not, I don't know. But there was something really um, very specific about her passing, which was very touching to all of us. The oddest thing, there was a certain point, and I, I was realizing this this afternoon, which is one of the reasons I sort of wanted to, to have this little service. I really can't believe that she's gone. Now, of course, that is about the most cliche thing that you can say about someone dying. What's so interesting is that I left a few days before she passed because I just couldn't stay in the, away from home any longer. She was so diminished. Um, she would um, open her eyes occasionally, and most of the time she wasn't in this world when she opened her eyes, but occasionally she would interact. She would rarely speak because it took so much effort to speak, but occasionally she was, and often she showed herself to be quite aware of where she was. But we hadn't been having anything like what you would call normal interaction for a really long time. But she was still there. You know, even just its tiny little frail, um, unmoving uh, heartbeat and breath. But as long as she was breathing and there was a heartbeat, she was still there. And now that she isn't, I don't, I don't even know where to put that. I, I just can't even think about how, how, what that means. And my goodness, the great mystery of life and death. Why, why are we not all always conscious of the temporary nature of our lives? This was Lord uh, Yama's question to Yudhisthira in the Mahabharata. What's the most astonishing thing about human life? That everyone dies and yet man thinks it's not going to happen to him. But the other part of it, from the yogi's point of view, which was just fascinating to me, was how absolutely everything goes away. Really goes away. I mean, we say it goes away, but I mean like really goes away. You're, you know, in her case, because she had chemotherapy, her hair was gone, because she hadn't really essentially eaten for eight months. She was about as small as you could be and not have your organs removed. I mean, she was just bones and organs. Just tiny. Um, personality was greatly diminished, but there was some essential universal pulse that was still her. But I have this, it's a little morbid, but not really. I have this picture, which I'm now calling the death mask, you know, which is realizing that my face and your face and your face and your face, everybody's face is going to go there. You know, all this carefully cultivated concern and in the very end this is very interesting I just really realized this this is what brought me on the path when I was 18 one of the first things that really brought me on the path 
was a night when, as I remembered, I didn't sleep during the night, but who knows whether I actually stayed awake all night. It felt like that. I kept trying to think of an alternative to the fact that at a certain point I would take my last breath and I would be absolutely solitary in that, that no one could go with me and that nothing could avoid it. And no matter how long it was, I was 18, it would still come. And where, it, where uh, everything would be informed, it had to be informed by that simple fact, which is to say it's all temporary. And so watching someone, you know, go through a, a, an experience like that very, very, very sobering, spiritually. But so interestingly, no matter how bad it got, there was always this un- bad it got in the sense of how diminished and how physically corrupted her body became. The essential consciousness was still joyful. And there was some essential link of pure joy. Um, but there it is, it's done. I, I, I shared with you all in different, light, uh, different times that I had a dream once of my own death. The details are not important except that I was executed in the dream, quite cheerfully executed. There was nothing scary at all about the dream. And when my, my head was cut off and I sailed off into the infinite, like a child, I waved goodbye to myself. What I waved goodbye to was my name. You know, goodbye, Asha. Bye-bye, Asha, is what I said. And what it meant to me in the dream was no loss of self because I was still there but it was the loss of all of that stuff all of that stuff that we carry that we carry so regularly that we mistake it for ourselves there was a certain point when Tushti's body began to fail her and her left leg her right leg let me just think no it was her left leg uh, sort of just didn't respond to her she has a tremendous willpower and a tremendous attunement to her physical body. She was a runner and a black belt and something or another and a yoga teacher and she knew her body. And she was so just bewildered as to why it wouldn't move. And I said, because you're dying. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> but you know, it's like so habitual. And that was such a moment for me because I realized even though we were all there and everybody knew she was dying and so did she, she forgot. What's wrong with my leg? Why isn't it, why isn't it responding to me? Ah, attachment. You know, this is a, the ancient, the old monastics used to keep a skull on the desk, human skull. I'm, I sometimes even make a cup out of a human skull, literally. I mean, it just sounds so gory, on, uh, morbid on a certain sense, but why? It's just reminding us that what am I doing? Where is my treasure? And the wonderful thing about it, it doesn't in any way necessitate repudiating this life. It just means understanding what's behind this and living this one all the time with that complete understanding that we're going somewhere else, friends. And what matters here, what happens here matters a great deal. It matters completely because it is an expression of our consciousness. But it's our consciousness that matters. And the expression is only meaningful insofar as we have seen to the first issue, which is what kind of consciousness do we have? Just as simple as that. 
And now Tirsti has just finished that whole thing. And she stayed in that body for a very long time. And I couldn't say for certain, but I would deeply and profoundly like to believe, and I, I, I think it's quite reasonable to believe, you know, she was just finishing karma there. She was very determined, very determined, and exercised that determination in very concrete ways. And by the way she controlled herself, by the way she endured pain, by the way she resisted medication, by the way she kept her attention on what was happening, by the honesty with which she dealt with any um, uh, oscillation of her consciousness, by her determination always to bring it back to the main point and to keep us all in order, you know, also, if we were varying from it at all. I don't know how you could be more committed than she was or put more will behind it, or more kindness behind it. So it's, it, it bodes well. It also, that's the last point of it, Tristy was a lovely person in, in life. She was a very warm-hearted, very kind, uh, very sensitive, very supportive. She had just, you know, she had a huge long list of qualities. She had a wonderful, refined sense of aesthetics and many other things like that. But I could say the same about many devotees at Ananda. In fact, I could make a very long list of people who also have those same qualities. It was very heartening. It was extremely heartening to see how, when pushed, as far as she was pushed, all of that training and all of that commitment and all of that good karma and all of that devotion just manifested as just the right kind of strength just at the time you need it. And uh, for all these reasons, I thank her. I thank her for her friendship, and I thank her for the uh, uh, unexpected opportunity to journey with her as deeply and as personally as I did for what it meant to me, for the opportunity to serve her her and surrender in any way that I was able to. I felt greatly honored to do that. And I thank her for the promise that she held out in front of us of, uh, of a noble death, since death will, death will come to us all, let us hope for a noble death, because she certainly gives us an example of one. And now, dear sister, you have earned your freedom. If anybody's earned your freedom, she has earned it. So, I'm now going to read this astral ascension on her behalf. Dearest Sister Tushti, dearest friend, you who have gone before us have entered a realm which our souls remember, a place of freedom, light, and laughter. Take with you on your journey our blessings and our love. We shall miss you. Our desire is not to hold you back, but only to tell you, friend, we are yours. Our love and support are ever yours and our prayers for your highest happiness. We shall meet again. Once more we shall laugh together, rejoice together, and share in the joy of seeking him. Claim your soul's freedom. Bless all who ever harmed you or ever wished you harm. Give them your love and your prayers for their freedom in God. Friend, cast from your heart all outward attachments. Realize that earthly goals, however shining, 
are but dreams. God is the only reality. Burn your earthly desires in the fire of wisdom. Burn earthly limitations in the blaze of inner freedom. Burn earthly disappointments in the flames of spreading peace. Burn earthly joys in the bonfire of divine bliss. See your physical form as a discarded garment. Clothed you now are in garments of radiant light. O free soul, see your past actions as scenes in a vast, unfolding tapestry. Feast not your gaze wistfully on episodes already finished, but look ahead. New adventures await you, fresh, joyous victories as you advance toward perfect freedom. And what of us, friend, who love you and would be remembered by you? Behold us as threads of light in the tapestry of your life, threads which, through the magnet of soul friendship, will appear ever and again, woven with increasing beauty as our hearts expand together in God's love. Divine Mother, receive thy child. Purify her in thy perfect light and love. Grant her eternal freedom in thee. Let us now, focusing on the spirit of Tushti, just see her radiant in light, sailing off into the infinite, dancing with the masters, wholly fulfilled within her heart, knowing that she lived this life as God intended and ended it in glory. Just rub our hands together and send our own vibration out to bless her. I just asked Surrender, did she die with her eyes open? Yeah, he said she wasn't looking at this world. Meaning, she, she wasn't asleep. She didn't go into any unconscious state. She was in and out. Her eyes were open and closed a lot in the last days. She, she seldom related to this world, although she did occasionally, he said. I wasn't there. I left on Friday morning and she died at noon on, at one o'clock on Monday. But he, I, I asked him, and he said, no, she opened her eyes and she was just looking off like this. But I mean, that takes a... a that's very promising. I don't understand everything by any means. I don't understand much. I was thinking when I was saying that, uh, somewhere toward the end, Tushti said to me, we'll be in the astral world together and we'll wear beautiful colors, she said. <laughs> she and I both like clothes and we both got trapped in this. <laughs> I said, well, you have to get my closet ready because I want to be able to just choose as soon as I get there. 
So I was thinking of her just now. She's getting to every color she wants. At a certain point when we were talking about her passing, very close to the end, uh, go into the light. And she said, into the pink. <laughs> like that. I said, yeah, pink, go into the pink. <laughs> Who knows? That? No. Everybody wishes that she gave us travel log. She didn't. It was a happy place, she said. She was in a happy place. And then at one point she said, it's very odd being there and here. But she, she was very unforthcoming in the way that you would want, you know. She didn't dictate little stories. But you could feel it, that's all I could say. Um, because everything was reduced to its essence, very little conversation conveyed great senses of understanding. And repeating the conversation does not convey the same sense of understanding. You know, even we'll be together in the astral world and wear beautiful colors. I mean, that, that's kind of like a flippant thing to say, but it wasn't. It was a real, we really will be, and we will. It's very dear. All right. Okay. So now we are into conversations with Yogananda. Do you all remember? (laughs) Okay. We are on number 67. Fortunately, I wrote it down. And the Master once made an interesting comment. You can practice yoga better in California than anywhere else on earth. Too bad New York, too bad Michigan. You can practice yoga in California better than anywhere else on earth. And they said the climate is more conducive. You know, when I thought about this recently, I think he meant climate, not weather. You know, because weather is one thing. Besides, California is a huge state. The weather's not the same all over. I've, I've never... Weather has always seemed a very sort of silly thing to say because it depends on where you are in California what the weather is but the, the climate is something completely different it refers to just the whole atmosphere and the master went to Los Angeles the Benares of the West he called it great saints and sages have lived there in that place and it's not as if the present um, life in Southern California especially not now um, fulfills that uh, prediction, but Master was tuning in on to much deeper rhythms on much longer levels. And more than that, I mean, California has always been for a long time just the place where new everything starts from. It's just always been that way. Um, new technology, new spiritual ways of thinking, new social movements, it just emanates from California. Um, so there's just some, there's some atmosphere of both energy and freedom and creativity here that I think is what he's talking about. And that's why you can practice yoga better here, because everything about the place, what to speak of the ancient history, the vibrations left by great masters, I, that I wouldn't be able to comment on, except his reference to Varanasi, um, that uh, somehow it works. I mean, that's what we experience, and I don't mean to be chauvinistic about it, but there really is no place like California. If you travel a little bit, you you find that out. Even in the U.S., there's many lovely places. And we are going into Dwapara, and we are finding that cultures are just amalgamating everywhere. But still, I think there's just something in the soil, which is relevant in this point. It hasn't happened so much lately. But when there was a lot of um, catastrophic predictions that were mostly based on earthquakes and pieces of the United States falling into the ocean, 
many of the scenarios had uh, California just breaking off. In fact, they had both coasts breaking off, but always California was going to break off, specifically where Ananda Village is. A lot of those parts were all just going to go away. Um, Swami's response was always just very pragmatic. He said, but this is the origin point of the consciousness that is the upcoming consciousness, the new consciousness. The whole point of the cataclysms is to clear the deck for that new consciousness to express itself. So why would that new consciousness be destroyed? And just the, the places where the older forms hold, why would those places be spared? From a cosmic point of view, it doesn't make any sense. And from the point of view of Ananda, Swami would sort of just shrug his shoulders and said, the masters led me to this land. He also thought it unlikely that Master would have led him to a piece of land that was going to end up at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. It just didn't, again, it just didn't make sense to him. Um, nor does it make sense to me, but there you have it. But Master saying that, why would, he, why would he speak of it? Why would he have put his headquarters there? Although he purportedly told his own disciples, someday you're going to have to rebuild everything. He didn't say that to Swami Kriyananda, but he said it to someone else which Swami took to mean earthquake or other kind of catastrophe, nuclear explosion, something like that. It doesn't mean that California will be unscathed. It just uh, means that it's not likely to disappear. So, unfortunately, our part of California is getting pretty crowded. But there you have it. Maybe, maybe something will happen. We'll see. Okay. Number 68. During his first years in Boston, the master studied the, studied the American ways of doing things, worked on becoming fluent in English, and gave classes to a few students. Dr. Lewis would sometimes talk with me about that period. The people were slightly disappointed, he said, in the master's explanations, which to them seemed too down-to-earth. They wanted something more um, ex- exotic. A few of them once complained to him, couldn't you go a little deeper into the Indian teachings? For the next class, accordingly, the master delved into some of the philosophic subtleties of the ancient teachings. Soon the students were all asleep. (laughs) It's a very uh, fun picture to think of master. He was in his 20s, and he came and he went to the little room in the YMCA and was just living in a very... um, unspectacular way at a time when he, just his mere presence was very exotic. You know, to, cross, to, to come all the way from India was a huge trip by ocean liner and just cultures and countries didn't mix in uh, 1920 when he came. It just, when, when we uh, hear the little play meeting of the masters and you hear Dr. and Mrs. Lewis talk about their first meeting with uh, master and just how in wherever they were in Massachusetts to have this long-haired Indian man dressed in these orange clothes just crossing the square of their little New England town. It was, it was so far outside of anybody's experience. On the other hand, you have to really um, credit those early disciples for having the courage of their own uh, experience and the sensitivity of their own consciousness to be able to see in this young man. And there was no, you have to understand, there was no supporting documents for him. Uh, that there was no context of gurus from India. I mean, some people, of course, would know the transcendentalists, the writers in Emerson and Thoreau, and in New England. There, I mean, they they found these sources and they did write 
and speak of them and study them themselves. It wasn't unknown, but it certainly wasn't common. And nobody understood what a master might be, who he might be, what he might be. And master didn't present himself um, in that way at all. In fact, Swamiji said something interesting that he felt that part of the reason why um, he and, the, and his guru bhais had very different ideas about who Master was and what he was doing was because of the timing of when he and some of the others came to Master. He, he writes this, I believe, in his biography of Yogananda. In the early years, Master was trying to encourage everyone to embrace the spiritual path. And he wanted people to feel that this was accessible to them. And he presented himself um, with this enormous magnetism, but he wanted them to feel that everybody can do this. And so he didn't emphasize, or or he he didn't refer um, to his own spiritual stature. Not that he was inclined to tout it, but by the time Swami came, and especially with Swamiji, he would more just easily and naturally refer to his own state of consciousness, his own states of realization. Whereas in those early years, Swamiji said he appreciated that Master did not because it, it wouldn't have served. It's like, here we are, we can do Kriya, we can be on the spiritual path, we can do these things, we can be disciples. And people just felt they could go along with it rather than there was this huge discrepancy. Well, of course, you can do it, sir, you're a master. And because we didn't have much exposure, very few people in the society had any exposure to the guru-disciple culture of India. There was just no, uh, no contradiction to that, actually. And Master himself, he came here, and he was trying to understand sort of where he was and what he needed to do, what language he needed to speak and how to speak it, and what people would listen to. I've shared with you before that Swami Kriyananda at some point in his life had a dream, um, which I believe was a superconscious dream and a true dream the way he described it, in which, in his, well, he, he had this dream in which a, a, an, a group of uh, emissaries from another planet came to Swamiji and wanted him to go with them. They had come to recruit him to come and be the teacher for their planet. Yeah, they needed, they needed someone who had the um, capacity to teach their planet. And they were very sincere. And Swamiji said, you know, his heart went out to them and he was inclined to want to help them. He said, and he was, he was about to agree when he said, oh, it would mean getting used to a whole new culture and learning a whole new language. He said, I just don't think I have it in me to do it again, <laughs> like that. And so he declined their invitation. He never elaborated. Would he have died in this world? Would he have lived on two places at the same time? Who knows? But just that, oh, I would have to learn a new language. I'd have to get used to another culture. Because when you stop and think about it for a minute, it's like Master had to find out what we Americans could hear. He couldn't just, or he didn't want to, just sort of present himself as he would in Calcutta or Mumbai and just let the chips fall where they may. He'd come to really um, spiritualize this culture it was, it was a unique mission, you see. It wasn't just one saint, just sort of wandering sadhus, just spreading his blessings where he will and then going back to the Himalayas. Master had come here to set an entirely new direction. He'd been sent here by Jesus. And that's how you have to think about it. 
You know, Jesus appeared to the great master Babaji. The, the people have forgotten what it was that I taught. We have to do something about that. And so master was what Babaji wanted to do about that on behalf of Jesus. So he wasn't representing himself, which he often said, that's how he would explain, why are you doing things in a certain way? He would say, that's what Babaji wants me to do. This is how my master taught me. And, and so he couldn't just say, this is who I am, because that, a sadhu can easily do that, just simply behave as he wishes to behave according to his own inner call, and that's that. But Master was on behalf of the, of the masters, of Babaji and Jesus. And so he had an obligation. It wasn't really a question just of being effective, but it was his whole mission was to understand what this Christian country, because we certainly were Judeo-Christian, you can call it, but that tradition was our tradition, especially then when it was a much more homogeneous society than it is now. And he had to just really understand where we were coming from because it wouldn't, again, it wouldn't serve him just to offer us something, even if it were exceedingly valid, if it didn't connect. Because we can, a person could only move um, towards something he can understand and see. And you can only take a step that's basically as long as your stride. And, and so he had to understand that. And so he talked about just spending time in Boston, just getting used to the American culture. Who are we really? And it's fun. I, last year sometime, or the year before, recently, when I was, went to the East Coast, uh, we did a little pilgrimage in Boston to some of the places where Master was. And we uh, gave a, a seminar in the chapel of the YMCA where Master lived. And the building, much of that YMCA has now been renovated but the little chapel is still there, just as it was. And a very charming, um, not, not too large a room, like about as big as uh, maybe our big, big classroom in the teaching center. You know, holds maybe 30 or 40 people comfortably. And at the most, mo- at the most. And I was just, it was really fun to just be standing there and giving this class, which actually, actually came out quite well, if you find it on the internet. <laughs> um, and just feel that, you know, Master must have been standing here, but he was standing here new to America and just trying to feel out what was happening here. And then, um, because much of that part of Boston is still as it was, as it's kind of a historical center, and you go across this big, the big square and there's this beautiful library. The Boston Library is an extraordinary piece of architecture and... Um, a couple of other places, a, a lecture hall and a few other places, and they're pretty much as they were. And, and when you're seeing it through Master's eyes, if you've been to India, of course the India he lived in was different than the one we see, but just seeing him walking around trying to understand you know, what moves these people. Um, I, when I visited Thailand, which I, I did a few times, the first time in 1986 on our way to India for the first time, Chidambar was on that flight, on that trip. We stopped in Thailand. We flew Air Thai, and they um, gave us one night or three nights in Thailand, so we took three. And uh, we, we tootled, touristed around Thailand, which was marvelous. Thailand has such an interesting aesthetic in very, very tiny details. And they had that the whole palace from whenever time it was, and every square inch of it was carved 
into, into inch square or smaller little pieces. And every morning in the hotel they do this incredible carving with fruit. You know, there's a watermelon and a cantaloupe and an apple, and it's all minutely carved, beautifully minutely carved. But I remember just looking at that and just thinking, like, who are you if this is how you make things? If, it, starting from, from what, what is your inner vibration, because everything is an expression of inner consciousness. So what kind of inner consciousness would end up coming out like this? And, and it was beautiful, but it was very, to our eyes, exotic. And so I was standing in the Boston Library, which is a beautiful example of Western architecture. I mean, you don't see, you don't see much that's that nice. You see why Master spent a lot of time in the library. It was just lovely in there. Um, but you can see him standing there just trying to think, who are the people that would create this? And how do, how do I reach out to them from where I'm standing and pull them toward the infinite? So he, he hung around for a while and taught classes to a few students. And then you have that charming thing about how he was just too practical. You know, they, they, if they were going to have an Indian guru, they wanted him to be exotic. Swamiji often jokes about that. You know, when people can't understand something, they'll say, it must be deep, I can't understand a word of it. <laughs> but Master was bringing something completely else. <laughs> oh, I know the last point about it. Um, uh, some of our American friends have lived either in Europe or in India, some now for quite a few years, on behalf of Ananda, helping to set up what Swami called missionary works there. And uh, one of our friends who's... Uh, uh, he's Canadian, actually, American-Canadian. And uh, he's been in India for about a decade now and quite easily and comfortably adapted. And um, At some point, somehow or another, the question of how did you become comfortable here? He said, at a certain point, I just stopped making comparisons. In my mind, I no longer think that this ought to be any other way than it is. And our friends who were a year and a half in Italy... He said, well, he said he got very comfortable there because he stopped thinking of Italy as an America that didn't work very well. <laughs> he just started thinking of it as an Italy that worked just fine. <laughs> you see how different that is? But because it's all just, it's all just our point of reference. It just, it, 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 everything just is what it is. Swami Kriyananda was um, so creative that way. When we first went to Europe, you know, he, he didn't say, this is what we do in America and this is what we'll do. He just was very, he, he was very um, restrained for a long time. You know, how, how would this universal expression of divine consciousness come out in this culture? And he, he let it go step by step rather than imposing on it what we do. Even when he came to live in Palo Alto from Ananda village, it was, what should we do? He said, tell me what, tell me what you think after you're there for a while. You know, what works in that atmosphere? This is not an isolated rural ashram, which is all we had known at that point. This is not a place where everybody have sold, have sold and sacrificed and left everything in order to live here. People are driving to their jobs and then coming to the temple. It's a wholly different vibration. And one of the great strengths of Ananda is Swamiji not merely accepting that, but reminding us of that. As, and as few of our readings as we go through this section, this is all very individual. And Master was brilliant at that. 
I mean, that's why his images, when you read Whispers from Eternity and so on in some of his other poems and essays, he talks about the television and the radio and the airplanes and the submarines. You know, he doesn't just hold with ancient symbols. He doesn't just talk about things that happened thousands of years ago. He looks right at what's going on. X-ray, silent electron floods and burning X-rays and so on. He just looks at what we know and then moves us forward from what we know, which, which is uh, a recipe for success. And it worked. <laughs> so, any comments or questions before we go on from that? All right, number 69. The Master told us of a community experiment that a few people had tried. Two ex-members of that community, he said, came to me later. The community itself no longer existed. Things were going along so harmoniously, they lamented, and then came an evening when half the community wanted custard for dessert and the other half wanted tapioca pudding. The agreement became so emotion the disagreement became so emotional that at last the community was disbanded. <laughs> Why, I inquired, Master said, didn't half of you simply have custard and the other half tapioca pudding? Oh, they exclaimed in surprise. We didn't think of that. <laughs> Artificial principles, Master said, in this case, an a priori commitment to consensus never work. A community must accept the diversity of human nature. Room must always be left for compromise. Rigidity, like a dry twig, is fragile and easily broken. Under stress, it will simply snap. Very interesting. And we all laugh about that example so much from our perspective of Ananda, and you find it hard even to take seriously. I mean, from, from our point of view. But the practical and brilliant way that Ananda is organized is so natural to us now that we don't even think about it um, because Swami just sort of wove it for us gradually from the beginning. Um, At the very beginning of Ananda, meaning the first five years or so, there were many different threads that were all running together and the one that actually became Ananda, you know, in retrospect, uh, was the one that really only had power, but there were lots of little vortices spinning. Because people have ideals. We, we think about this. We think we, we repudiate the ordinary way of living, and we have some ideal concept of how life can be better. And there's many different um, things that people become inspired by. Um, renewable energy, uh, organic living, um, no plastic, <laughs> uh, nonviolent communication, uh, group marriage, no exclusivity in relationships, um, sacred mushrooms, you know, or we always have to agree, you know, we can't have majority rule is tyranny. We, we can all come together and express from our hearts and we'll find a way to be unified. And when you stand on, on the other side of it, you know, on the, on the far side of that, you can see how people could really want that. 
Let's, let's talk about consensus for a minute. We're all well-meaning people. We can all get together and it becomes a, simply a principle that we will discuss until we agree. And at the beginning of Ananda, there were a lot of people who essentially wanted to run by consensus. And as Swami put it, he just let them have their meetings. And he never attended and he never really paid any attention. As he said, he just let them do what they were doing while he quietly built the community over here. And they thought they were building the community with these long discussions of getting everybody's feelings out into the open until everybody could agree and we honored everybody and left space for everybody. And the Swami said, never accomplished anything because we were so busy leaving space for anybody, we could never go forward. As famously, there was a dog that somebody had dropped off there, a dog named Blue. And Swami always uses as the example that it took five years for the community to decide what to do with the dog. But you can see it because we don't dare do it till we all agree. So you can see how that poor community got together over an issue of dessert and everything had always been worked out together. And suddenly, for some reason, of course, there were always, there must have been simmering other realities behind it. Um, but you could see how it could fall apart because the whole premise was that. The, the question of community, just speaking of that for a moment, and the question that is always asked, we even you know, put it into the Finding Happiness movie, the question of whether or not you can have a community that isn't based on God. Swami answers in the movie in a sort of general way, well, you have to have something that ties it into a knot. Um, my answer to it always has been, you have to have something that people are willing to sacrifice their own likes and dislikes for. You have to have something uh, that, that is more important to people than their own egos. And it's, it's, it's really hard to make organic gardening or solar power or consensus really strong enough for you to really feel that you can um, sacrifice your own preferences for it, overcome your own ego in favor of it. Or even that a principle that's strong enough that it's an overarch that's what Swami meant by tying it all in a knot, an overarching principle that will allow you to feel that you haven't compromised when you have to compromise. If your only principle is organic gardening, you just can't give it up. You know, if, if the community can't afford always to do this, but that's all you're based on, you'd rather go under than compromise it. But God realization is a principle that ties it all up neatly, which is why that's all Swami ever worked on. He worked on discipleship, devotion, and understanding of God. And then... Basically, the community is a natural byproduct of that devotion. And Swami himself on many occasions said, you know, the community is not important to me per se. What's important is to help people to find God. And the community is an asset to that. And that's the point of the community. But for some people, the community itself is, is the end point, And that's harder to sustain, as exemplified by this. That's why Master said you can't just do it on an abstract principle you have to do it based on individual human nature. But that's where self-realization makes it possible for human nature to exist cooperatively. Um, you may have questions on this, but let's take a short break, and then when we come back, we'll go there. That about that part of things? Or anything, for that matter? Questions or comments? 
Hmm. You have a lot to say to each other, but nothing to me, huh? <laughs> I take it personally. You've gotten used to my being away, is what's happened. We've forgotten who you are. Yeah, you've just filled in the space where I used to stand. <laughs> Everybody's expendable. Why would I be different? Okay. Go it was ahead. while you were talking about Master coming as a young man and uh-huh. having to learn the culture and Swami in the early years of Ananda. And, um, I was again struck by the universality of. God and how he can be found everywhere in every culture and how he gives us ways to find him relatively to wherever you're living and whatever outfit you're wearing and whatever culture you're wearing and and just the beauty of that whole thing is astounding. um, When I was uh, watching Tushti die and thinking about being reduced to the irreducible minimum which is just simply individual awareness uh, uh, one of the things that I was seeing is, you know, the uh, Swami talks about how because creation is so complicated, we imagine that the Creator must be complicated. That's just the way, whether you're thinking about that or not, how could something simple create something so complicated? And, but Swami talked, and I've shared this before, how he talked about, but the closer you get to the source, the vibration, when it's oscillating enormously, is what creates all these variations. But when it gets stiller and stiller, it moves less and less distance from the center, and therefore the variation is less. Because it's closer to the center, there's not as much space. I know when Agni used to give a class about music, he would talk about how Om is the original sound, and some music is closer to the sound of Om, and the farther you get away, from it, you know, the more dissonant or different it is than the Om sound. And that's the principle of Indian music where the tambura plays constantly. And so there's always a reference point and no matter how creative the dancers or the singers or the musicians become, the the Om is always there. So you're never that far away from it. You always come back to it. So um, with us, we, whatever we're expressing can only be the vibration of our own consciousness. It it can't be anything else. And the forms that it takes are so superficial and all of us emanate from that same singularity. And what we think of as such enormous variations, whether we're talking about cultures or we're just talking about people. You know, I'm a bhakti, I'm a jnani, I'm an organized person, I'm disorganized, I'm creative, I'm a rule-bound, all of these different things which seem so important to us. I'm this age, I'm healthy, I'm not healthy, just all these different things. It seems to matter. But it really doesn't because it's such a thin veneer over what we really are, which is the vibration of our consciousness. And so a master who can stand at the center of that, that's why Swami tells the story of Master you know, having an hour interview with a woman who didn't speak English. And the, the woman only spoke Spanish, but she didn't, she wasn't, she couldn't remember really what language they did speak. She just knew that she only spoke Spanish and they conversed. Because he was standing at the center. And from the center he could, his consciousness could express any way it needed to express. It's, it's really, um, 
it's a beautiful thought. And it's really, and that's why, you know, Ananda Moima, everyone she would meet, she would call them mother or father. Everybody was a mother or a father to her. There's stories, she was in the forest and she meets a, a group of dacoits of bandits and just addresses the, the leader as father and mother and just behaves like a child to them. They treat her like their child. It doesn't cross her mind that there's anything because she's looking everywhere she looks, she sees the same one reality. It's, um, it's definitely something to aspire to on a very profound level. On the other side, I mean, some people's consciousness is really, really far from the Om. I remember when, uh, this was like 30 years ago, when the music that I didn't enjoy was tame by comparison to the music I don't enjoy now. Um, and uh, people were, then that was before the, the earbuds and people, remember when people were carrying boom boxes? <laughs> yeah, remember that? And you'd see yeah, people walking around with these big boom boxes and then they would impose it on the whole world around them. And I said something to Swami about, you know, some of those people seem like nice enough people walking around with those boxes on their shoulders listening to that awful music. Swami's answer was chilling. Oh, he said, if you could see their consciousness. Just like that. Wow. It's very, uh, it was, it frightened me because of the way he said it. In fact, because the inner consciousness that they really were expressing um, was very far from home. Yeah, I know. Okay, happy news. Let's go on with the next thing. Anybody? Yeah. And it, it, it doesn't bode well for the future of our planet. Here we are. Well, we're sharing the planet with them and some of them have a lot of power. Uh, in the class I was giving on Saturday, um, I remembered and repeated, I'll repeat it here because I think it's relevant. What Swami said, he said it many, many years ago and he talked about in America at this time there are four basic reincarnational groups because reincarnate groups, people cling, vibrations cling together and souls cling together in over many lifetimes. When I went to Houston, Texas and went to, to visit, um, this was many years ago, decades ago, um, the Space Center in Houston. And it was actually ex- extremely interesting. It was a very entertaining tourist event. And uh, as soon as I stepped on that campus, I became conscious of the fact that this is another karmic group. You know, all of these people, hundreds, thousands of them, they all came together to explore space. They're all scientists and they're having a great party together, just like we were having a party at Ananda. It was just a completely other karmic group. And when you really think about it, every, everything is a karmic group, especially these. And that's what gives them also this illusion of great power because they're all in tune with each other and they reinforce each other. And so Swami said these reincarnational groups are, are, are here again to act out their destiny because they're, it's, it's a... It's an unlearned lesson in a flow of energy and motion. And the four reincarnational groups are the Atlanteans. The, um, and the Atlanteans are the people who are very scientifically oriented and feel that if we can just figure it out, we can make it work. And live much more in the idea that we can, not the idea that we need to tune in, that there's a, a greater reality that we need to work in harmony with, that the planet has a consciousness, we need to work with nature. It's just, it's very scientific, it's very um, divorced from anything except, we can work it out, we can make it work. 
we can develop these kinds of foods. We can develop this transportation system. We can uh, do the whatever we need to do to get the oil out. We can uh, adjust the genetic structure. We can beat these diseases. And it's not, um, well, carried to an extreme, it's not good. And what happened, as Swami described this in Atlantis, um, that 12,000 years ago, was that those people had the power and they just got the, the, the whole plant, their whole continent so disbalanced that it sank. <laughs> just because they got so out of tune. They got so out of tune with natural law by what they were doing with their minds and with their science that it uh, went to the bottom of the sea. That's the myth of Atlantis. It isn't a myth, apparently. And so that whole group is back again. And they're doing it again. They're, they're just having a lot of fun with their scientific and innovation and they're doing all these things that seem like really good ideas to them. You know, genetically modified this and vaccination that and radiation this and whatever it might be. We'll just, we'll take the power and we'll make it work and they're going to disbalance it again. And, you know, so we have global warming and we have all the other ecological disasters that are happening because people are just pushing in that way. That's one group. The other group is the Romans, the hedonistic absolute morally uh, corrupt Romans who brought that whole culture down with their pure uh, sensuality and selfishness. And that group is in charge of entertainment and media. <laughs> That's what I, I was remembering that detail of it. That's Hollywood. They're all doing entertainment and media. And so they're enormously influential. And they are just bringing the moral character of our country absolutely as low as they can possibly bring it. You know, with the fashions and with the television and the movies and the music, that whole group, that's just the, Ro the Roman uh, hedonists, sensualists, just it, it morally bankrupt people who are just imposing this insanity. Um, Swami didn't talk about sports figures, but I think a lot of them must be the Romans too, you know, from that whole period. The Romans and the Atlanteans have all the apparent power now. I mean, that's where all the power is, in the media, in the publicity, um, entertainment business, in science, technology, medicine, all of those fields. That's where the apparent power is. And both of those people working together are going to blow up our, our society. And just like they've done before, just like they did before. And then there's the two other groups are Indians, two, in, two kinds of Indians. One is Native Americans, and the other is East Indians. This is all just the American. And many, many souls who are being born into white bodies like these really had many more incarnations in the Indian culture, in the true Indian culture, the Vedic culture, the Himalayan culture. I have always, I have never looked right to myself. And finally one day I realized that it's the color of the skin. It's just so pale and pasty. And when I see these beautiful caramel-colored people, I think, now that's what I'm supposed to look like, you know? It took me a long time to figure that out. So only I was at the YMCA one day, and I thought, that's it. That's what it's supposed to be. This is, what, this is the look I've been looking for that I've never had here. But it's, it's much deeper, of course, than just that. It's just this whole approach to life, which is really the, the Vedic way of living, Sanatana Dharma way of living. And the American Indians are the ones who are very attuned to nature and ecology and who, who just are so passionate about Mother Earth and all that we need to make happen here. And the, the East Indian people 
uh, are influencing a little tiny bit, and the ecology people are influencing a little tiny bit, but the Atlanteans and the Romans just don't take us seriously at all. They just, they, they know that we're here, but, you know, even yoga has been turned into this purely sensual experience and uh, corrupted in a thousand ways. I mean, even when, even when a tiny bit of our world gets into their world, it just, uh, it loses its purity almost immediately. And what will happen, Swami said, is the Atlanteans and the Romans will just blow the whole thing to bits and bring the society down just like they did before. And when they do, the Indians, who are much stronger in our influence than anybody knows, will suddenly just rise from, from those ashes. And, and our day will not come until they finish their karmic cycle. And the ones of them that are left will be quite surprised to see us <laughs> because they don't really know that we're here and they don't take us seriously. It's a very interesting picture, and I mean, I, I say it's relevant now. The reason I'm expressing in great detail is because of what's happening in American politics right now. You know, American politics is, without bothering to go into it because it's, you all know it as well as I do, but it's, it's very peculiar what's happening. But it's this natural direction. You know, it's the Romans and the Atlanteans, they're just pushing the game pushing the power, the self-aggrandizement, because, you know, a lot of the, most of the politicians are Romans. I believe that's what Swami said, yes. Most of the politicians are Romans. Because you can see they're just in it for themselves. Even if they're not pure hedonists, they're hedonists in the sense that they're only in it for themselves. There's no nobility, none, zero. You know, we have some people now who have basically stripped off any mask of civilization. (laughs) But it doesn't mean that the ones who've been more genteel about it are even slightly more principled. It's just where we are. But it may be just fine. Because, well, it is just fine. Because whatever's going to happen is just going to happen. But it's just, it's just the, this is where we're going. And we have our job. It's just not our day yet. But the job that we're doing is exactly what we're doing, is we're getting ourselves organized. And we're getting our roots deep. And I, this coming back to the whole idea of community, which Swamiji has made such a strong point of many times about... Community is really the answer to what our society is facing right now. You know, back to a simple, cooperative, more natural way of living. But community per se, even though it's a very attractive idea to many people, many people have no idea really how to pull it off because they don't understand what will really make it work one way or another. I, I've shared with some of you, I, I, yeah, I, can, I think I can put it on the film now. I have to think about it. When we were in the middle of making the movie, um, we had worked it all up to this last final scene in which um, the Finding Happiness movie, and with Juliet, the character, says something to Swami about making a community. And he's, his answer is supposed to be this big clarion call that everyone in the world can make communities. You can do it. Everyone can do it. Which is, he ends up more or less saying. And the whole um, film scene is set for this final, like... Uh, response from Swami and we're we're going in a fairly spontaneous way through all this it was relatively unscripted but we knew where we were trying to go but we come right to the point where Swamiji is supposed to call out for everyone to found communities and he just doesn't go there he doesn't even come close he misses it by by you know by a barn he just is way over somewhere else and Ted who was the director 
was very diplomatic. He says, okay, well, good. That, that was good. That was real good. Okay, uh, Asha, where's Asha? Kind of like this. <laughs> Asha, could you come? We need to talk a little bit. And let's take a break for lunch. Okay. So then Ted says to me, you know, Asha, this was the whole point of the movie. We're supposed to get it to the point where he issues this clarion call for community and we're supposed to do this. So uh, he says, you need to talk to Swami. So I went downstairs and I said, sir, you know, what we were hoping was uh, that you would encourage her to found community. He said, oh, he said, it's very difficult to start communities. Nobody can really do it. (laughs) I said to Ted, you know, Ted, this has always been the weakness of the movie. (laughs) We've just come up right against it now, which is that it's really hard to start communities. (laughs) On a certain level, it's hard. I have to correct this because this film will live longer than this evening. I mean, what we're talking about here. But, uh, so I, I, was, I was laughing so hard I could hardly speak. I thought it was just so hilarious that the whole thing had just come down to this and this is where we were. But uh, afterwards, after I stopped laughing, we, Ted, who just rolled with the punches, he was fantastic. You know, okay, well, you know, what are we going to do? I said, it's all right. Shivani and I will talk to Swami. And we did and we, we allowed his how, yes, that was a point of view. <laughs> But certainly there was something else we could say. And of course, Swami just, he had just been responding in the moment. His very was in the moment. And in the moment, that was his thought. So we talked it through. And you'll see in the film, he says, what is true? Just be a big family. Make, be kind to each other. Because it also, it also depends on uh, what level you're working. And the real truth of it is, you see, Ananda has a model. And when Swami really talks about community seriously, what he says quite simply is, Follow this model. It doesn't mean you have to be us. You don't have to be devoted to master. You don't have to follow it exactly. But pay attention to the principles that we've worked out. Because if you just randomly think you can just gather a group of people together and that it's all going to work because we've called ourselves a community, you're probably in for a rude awakening unless you just happened to get a a good karmic group together that works. But if you just... it, it, It often crashes... Because there are principles, and those principles also include, as, as Swami said, well, it helps to have God at the top of it. But when our society, which we're moving toward, finds this intense, uh, isolated individuality um, agonizingly painful or utterly unsustainable, uh, it'll be nice that there's some people around, and we're by, we're by no means the only ones, but we've certainly done a good job of it, who can just help people sort of make this, make this work. And, you know, answer in a very common sense way, well, you know, this is, gonna, this is a good, let's try it this way. This is a proven direction, let's try it this way. And I think it will have a tremendous and positive effect. Swamiji has made statements like, you know, 50 years from now, people will say that the most important thing happening in the country at this time was Ananda which is, it's hard to believe, but it's based on a certain scenario, which is that the whole context of our society will change and the necessity both to relate to a greater reality than oneself and the, and the technique of self-sustaining uh, world brotherhood colonies and attunement with God will be what people are interested in. And then what we've worked out, because we've worked out a lot, it's been a long time and we've worked out a lot, which we take for granted. But uh, it isn't. It's genius. And uh, w- the day will come. <laughs> <laughs>
I believe. Okay, any comments or thoughts? Sir? Uh, Maybe you just answered it, but when you were talking about the Atlanteans and the Romans and all that stuff and how everything was going to be terrible, then I thought you've also commented about uh, what everything is within the will of God. So I was trying to kind of uh, get that... Well, see, we assume that catastrophe is, like, why wouldn't God want to wipe out that which was bad and give everybody a chance to grow? All depends on your premise. What is the purpose of this world? I just watched this woman die. I watched everything about her change and vaporize and break. And simultaneously, the spirit got bigger and bigger and bigger. And there was a correlation between a direct correlation between the more everything else went away, the more the spirit was given the freedom to go, the more that individuality put down all those limitations. Very strange factor. Of course, you know, a person is very thin and uh, in the state that she was in. But her, her face just... I noticed this in Paula, too. too. She was a very beautiful woman and even at the end retained the bone structure and so on. But toward the end, she became exceedingly androgynous. And it was, and Paula did too. Just this, it was like the male-female just combined. And it was like, and also it was all that strength of the soul just made the face, gave the face this power that was not what you would think of as feminine. And I was, I was just fascinated watching it because I'd also seen it when Paula died. Paula was, Paula, like Tushti, was a very um, uh, attractive female person. Uh, you know, in, in in the nicest way. And then both of them became... Paula didn't have what Tushy did, which is the, all the effects of chemotherapy. Paula was just living normally and then died in two weeks. But um, still, she went very masculine at the end because of that force in the face. So what was the point of that? Oh, but um, to be comfortable is not the point. And we are changing from we are changing from Kali into Dwapara, and how are we going to get there? It, it's like, you look at around, look what's happening. I don't particularly like it either. It's really it's horrible things that are happening. I mean, the last attack in Brussels. I mean, it's just there's there are crazy people on this planet. But we have, you know, we had World War One, we had World War Two, we've had Rwanda, we've had all this. There are crazy people on the planet with us, and for some reason. We thought it was a good idea to come here now. So we have to just at least look with interest and wonder why. So it seems. So it seems. Karma has to go forward somehow. You know, Tushti's, I'll go back because it's so much in my mind, her life life was over. So this cancer grew. I mean, it's a conscious force. Swami had a little bit of cancer in him and when they, they, they took it out of him and in India they have this strange habit they show you what they've taken out of your body. <laughs> Maybe just to prove to you that they actually did the operation. I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> but they showed him in this little bowl this little tumor that they'd taken out of him. It wasn't real big and he said he looked at it he said it looked really angry at him. <laughs> it looked angry for being removed. You know, it, was, it, had, its, it had its place. It was doing its job. It was, it's a conscious... You know, every every atom is dowered with individuality. So these dark people are dark beings with very dark consciousness. For some reason, this is a planet they got to be on and they've burrowed into our midst and they're being evil. 
and it's their turn to be evil. And they're just, they're just as dear to God as the greatest saint. And somehow or another they get to end a lot of people's lives prematurely or cause them great grief. It's not going to work out really well for them in the end. The people that they take off the planet are really not as bad off as the ones who took them off the planet. You know, woe be unto the one who is the instrument. But for some reason they think it's a good idea. And they will find out that it isn't. And it will be very painful for them. So here we are. Okay, I think that's the end. Death, we started with whether or not California is going to fall into the ocean and we end with the collapse of civilization. So aren't you glad that I came back? (laughs) All right.